0: Chapter Two of Molly Make Believe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox dot Molly Make Believe by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. Chapter Two. Turning nervously back to the box's wrapping paper, Stanton read once more the perfectly plain, perfectly unmistakable name and address, his own, repeated in absolute duplicate on the envelope. Quicker than his mental comprehension, mere physical embarrassment began to flush across his cheekbones. Then suddenly the whole truth dawned on him. The first installment of his serial love letter had arrived. "'But I thought—I thought it would be typewritten,' he stammered miserably to himself. "'I thought it would be a—be a hectograph kind of a thing.' Why, hang it all, it's a real letter, and when I doubled my check and called for a special edition deluxe, I wasn't sitting up on my hind legs begging for real presents. But, dear lad, persisted the pleasant round, almost childish handwriting. Dear lad, I could have cried yesterday when I got your letter telling me how sick you were. Yes, but crying wouldn't comfy you any, would it? so just to send you right off quick something to prove that i'm thinking of you here's a great rollicking woolly wrapper to keep you snug and warm this very night i wonder if it would interest you any at all to know that it is made out of a most larksome outlaw up on my grandfather's sweet meadowed farm a really truly black sheep that i've raised all my own sweaters and mittens on for the past five years only it takes two whole seasons to raise a blanket wrapper so please be awfully much delighted with it. And, oh, Mr. Seekboy, when you look at the funny blurry colours, couldn't you just please pretend that the tinge of green is the flavour of pleasant pastures, and that the streak of red is the cardinal flower that blazed along the edge of the noisy brook? good till to-morrow. Molly With a face so altogether crowded with astonishment that there was no room left in it for pain, Stanton's lame fingers reached out inquisitively and— "'patted the warm, woolly fabric. "'Nice old Lammy,' he acknowledged judicially. "'Then suddenly round the corners of his underlip "'a little bulky smile began to flicker. "'Of course I'll save the letter for Cornelia,' he protested, "'but no one could really expect me to paste "'such a scrumptious blanket-wrapper into a scrapbook.' Laboriously wriggling his thinness and his coldness into the black sheep's luxuriant, irresponsible fleece, a bulging side pocket in the wrapper bruised his hip. Reaching down very temperishly to the pocket, he drew forth a small lace-trimmed handkerchief, knotted pudgily across a brimming handful of fir-balsam needles. Like a scorching hot August breeze, the magic woodsy fragrance crinkled through his nostrils. These people certainly know how to play the game all right, he reasoned whimsically, noting even the consistent little letter M, embroidered in one corner of the handkerchief. Then, because he was really very sick and really very tired, he snuggled down into the new blessed warmth and turned his gaunt cheek to the pillow and cupped his hand for sleep like a drowsy child with its nose and mouth burrowed eagerly down into the expectant draught. But the cup did not fill." yet scented deep in his curved, empty, balsam-scented fingers lurked, somehow, somewhere, the dregs of a wonderful dream, boyhood with the hot, sweet flutter of summer woods, and the pillowing warmth of the soft, sun-baked earth, and the crackle of a twig, and the call of a bird, and the drone of a bee, and the great blue, blue mystery of the sky, glinting down through a green-latticed canopy overhead. For the first time in a whole cruel, torturous week, he actually smiled his way into his morning nap. When he woke again, both the sun and the doctor were staring pleasantly into his face. "'You look better,' said the doctor, "'and more than that you don't look half so cussed cross.' "'Sure,' grinned Stanton, with all the deceptive, undauntable optimism of the just awakened. "'Nevertheless,' continued the doctor more soberly, "'There ought to be somebody a trifle more interested in you than the janitor to look after your food and your medicine and all that. I'm going to send you a nurse.' "'Oh, no!' gasped Stanton. "'I don't need one, and, frankly, I can't afford one.' Shy as a girl, his eyes eluded the doctor's frank stare. "'You see,' he explained diffidently, "'you see, I'm just engaged to be married.' "'and though business is fairly good and all that, "'my being away from the office six or eight weeks "'is going to cut like the deuce into my commissions. "'And roses cost such a horrid price last fall, "'and there seems to be a game law on diamonds this year. "'They practically fine you for buying them, and—' "'The doctor's face brightened irrelevantly. "'Is she a Boston young lady?' he queried. "'Oh, yes,' bimmed Stanton. "'Good,' said the doctor.' Then, of course, she can keep some sort of an eye on you. I'd like to see her. I'd like to talk with her, give her just a few general directions, as it were. A flush deeper than any mere love embarrassment spread suddenly over Stanton's face. She isn't here, he acknowledged, with barely analyzable mortification. She's just gone south. Just gone south, repeated the doctor. You don't mean since you've been sick— "'Stanton nodded with a rather wobbly grin, and the doctor changed the subject abruptly and busied himself quickly with the least bad-tasting medicine that he could concoct. "'Then, left alone once more with a short breakfast and a long morning, Stanton sank back gradually into a depression infinitely deeper than his pillows, in which he seemed to realize with bitter contrition— that in some strange unintentional manner his purely innocent matter-of-fact statement that cornelia had just gone south had assumed the gigantic disloyalty of a public proclamation that the lady of his choice was not quite up to the accepted standard of feminine intelligence or affections though to save his life he could not recall any single glum-word or gloomy gesture that could possibly have conveyed any such erroneous impression to the doctor "'Why, Cornelia had to go south,' he reasoned conscientiously. "'Every girl like Cornelia had to go south sometime between November and March. "'How could any mere man even hope to keep rare, choice, exquisite creatures like that, "'cooped up in a slushy, snowy New England city, "'when all the bright, gorgeous, rose-blooming south was waiting for them with open arms? "'Open arms! "'Apparently it was only climates that were allowed any such privileges with girls like Cornelia.' Yet, after all, wasn't it just exactly that very quality of serene, dignified aloofness that had attracted him first to Cornelia among the score of freer-mannered girls of his acquaintance? Glumly reverting to his morning paper, he began to read and re-read, with dogged persistence, each item of politics and foreign news, each gibbering advertisement— at noon the postman dropped some kind of a message through the slit in the door but the plainly discernible green one-cent stamp forbade any possible hope that it was a letter from the south at four o'clock again someone thrust an offensive pink gas bill through the letter slide at six o'clock stanton stubbornly shut his eyes up perfectly tight and muffled his ears in the pillow so that he would not even know whether the postman came or not "'The only thing that finally roused him to plain grown-up sense again "'was the joggle of the janitor's foot, kicking mercilessly against the bed. "'Here's your supper,' growled the janitor. "'On the bare tin tray, tucked in between the cup of gruel and the slice of toast, "'loomed an envelope, a real, rather fat-looking envelope. "'Instantly from Stanton's mind vanished every conceivable sad thought concerning Cornelia.' With his heart thumping like the heart of any lovesick schoolgirl, he reached out and grabbed what he was supposed to was Cornelia's letter. But it was postmarked Boston, and the handwriting was quite plainly the handwriting of the Syria Letter Company. Muttering an exclamation that was not altogether pretty, he threw the letter as far as he could throw it out into the middle of the floor, and, turning back to his supper, began to crunch his toast furiously like a dragon crunching bones at nine o'clock he was still awake at ten o'clock he was still awake at eleven o'clock he was still awake at twelve o'clock he was still awake at one o'clock he was almost crazy by quarter past one as though fairly hypnotized his eyes began to rivet themselves on the little bright spot in the rug where the serial letter lay gleaming whitely in a beam of electric light from the street Finally, in one supreme childish impulse of petulant curiosity, he scrambled shiveringly out of his blankets with many O's and ouches, recaptured the letter and took it growlingly back to his warm bed. Worn out quite as much with the grinding monotony of his rheumatic pains as with their actual acuteness, the new discomfort of straining his eyes under the feeble rays of his nightlight seemed almost a pleasant diversion. The envelope was certainly fat. As he ripped it open, three or four folded papers, like sleeping powders, all duly numbered, one a.m., two a.m., three a.m., four a.m., fell out of it. With increasing inquisitiveness, he drew forth the letter itself. "'Dear honey,' said the letter quite boldly. Absurd as it was, the phrase crinkled Stanton's heart, just the merest trifle. "'Dear honey,' There are so many things about your sickness that worry me. Yes, there are. I worry about your pain. I worry about the horrid food that you're probably getting. I worry about the coldness of your room. But most of anything in the world I worry about your sleeplessness. Of course you don't sleep. That's the trouble with rheumatism. It's such an old night nagger. Now, do you know what I'm going to do to you?' "'I'm going to evolve myself into a sort of a rheumatic night's entertainment "'for the sole and explicit purpose of trying to while away some of your long dark hours. "'Because if you've simply got to stay awake all night long and think, "'you might just as well be thinking about me, Carl Stanton. "'What? Do you dare smile and suggest for a moment that just because of the absence between us "'I cannot make myself vivid to you? "'Oh, silly boy!' Don't you know that the plainest sort of black ink throbs more than some blood, and the touch of the softest hand is a harsh caress compared to the touch of a reasonably shrewd pen? Here now, I say, this very moment, lift this letter of mine to your face and swear, if you're honestly able to, that you can't smell the rose in my hair—a cinnamon rose, would you say? A yellow, flat-faced cinnamon rose? Not quite so lusciously fragrant as those in your grandmother's July garden?" A trifle paler? Perceptibly cooler? Something forced into blossom, perhaps behind a brittle glass under barren winter moonshine? And yet—ah, ha hear me laugh. You didn't really mean to let yourself lift the page and smell it, did you? But what did I tell you? I mustn't waste too much time, though, on this nonsense. What I really wanted to say to you was— here are four, not sleeping potions, but waking potions. Just four silly little bits of news for you to think about at one o'clock, and two, and three, and four if you happen to be so miserable to night as to be awake even then. With my love, MOLLY. Whimsically Stanton rummaged around in the creases of the bedspread and extricated the little folded paper marked number one o'clock. The news in it was utterly brief. My hair is red was all that it announced with a sniff of amusement Stanton collapsed again into his pillows for almost an hour then he lay considering solemnly whether a red headed girl could possibly be pretty by two o'clock he had finally visualized quite a striking Junoesque type of beauty with a figure about the regal height of Cornelia's and blue eyes perhaps just a trifle hazier and more mischievous BUT THE LITTLE FOLDED PAPER MARKED NUMBER TWO O'CLOCK ANNOUNCED DESTRUCTIVELY MY EYES ARE BROWN AND I AM VERY LITTLE. WITH AN ABSURDLY RESOLUTE INTENTION TO PLAY THE GAME EVERY BIT AS GENUINELY AS Miss SERIAL LETTER COMPANY WAS PLAYING IT, STANTON REFRAINED QUITE HEROICALLY FROM OPENING THE THIRD DOSE OF NEWS UNTIL AT LEAST TWO BIG RESONANT CITY CLOCKS HAD INSISTED THAT THE HOUR WAS RIPE. By that time the grin in his face was almost bright enough of itself to illuminate any ordinary page. "'I am lame,' confided the third message somewhat depressingly. Then, snuggling in parentheses like the tickle of lips against his ear, whispered the one phrase, "'My picture is in the fourth paper, if you should happen still to be awake at four o'clock.' "'Where now was Stanton's boasted sense of honour concerning the ethics of playing the game according to directions? "'Wait a whole hour to see what Molly looked like?' "'Well, he guessed not.' Fumbling frantically under his pillow and across the medicine stand, he began to search for the missing number four o'clock. Quite out of breath, at last he discovered it lying on the floor, a whole arm's length away from the bed. Only with a really acute stab of pain did he finally succeed in reaching it.' Then, with fingers fairly trembling with effort, he opened forth and disclosed a tiny snapshot photograph of a grim-jawed, scrawny-necked, much bespectacled elderly dame with a huge gray pompadour. Stung, said Stanton. Rheumatism or anger or something buzzed in his heart like a bee the rest of the night. Fortunately, in the very first mail the next morning, a postal card from Cornelia Such a pretty postal-card, too, with a bright-coloured picture of an inordinately riggy-looking ostrich staring over a neat wire fence at an eager group of unmistakably northern tourists. Underneath the picture was written, in Cornelia's own precious hand, the heart-thrilling information. We went to see the ostrich farm yesterday. It was really very interesting. C. End of chapter 2